Hey everybody. I was away last week, but hopefully I gave you all enough warning not to be too annoyed or alarmed by the absence. Since we last heard from each other, I've been through Mexico City, Houston, Detroit, and Kalamazoo, done some in-person reporting, helped paint part of a house, got marginally better at pinball, and went camping up in the frozen northern wastes of Michigan State with an old Peace Corps buddy in the full blast of the wind off the big lake. This is going to be another bye week and I'm releasing October's news show on corruption to the general public in lieu of an actual new episode, and it makes it easier for everybody on Patreon who couldn't be asked to listen to it on the Patreon site versus in the regular podcast feed, which is a position that I more than understand. I'm getting my mitts on legal pads for the first time in eight months today, and I've got what I think are some interesting ideas about land, food, and capitalism, along with another thing about the weaponization of political cynicism under Nixon and Trump, and where it might lead us, which I imagine you know is nowhere good, so I should have some worthwhile stuff out to you before I head back to Mexico on the 28th of this month. Nobody knew on Patreon so far in December, but I do have some people who deserve a thank you. Bruno Sauvignon has been all over SFD's media, and inasmuch as I've been moving around too much to give Twitter my full attention as of late, I've really enjoyed talking with him. V over on Patreon's doing what he or she can to help out, and the quantities are, to me, heroic. And then Blaine Dietrich, an old friend and the first real fan of this show, he's donated both some cryptocurrency to SFD and, even better, picked up some of the books on the Amazon wishlist for me. And with no exaggeration, a good couple of hours in the eventual Vietnam series are going to come down to his little set of Christmas miracles. Alright folks, enough of all that. I'm John Coombs. I appreciate your patience. We're talking about corruption, and this is News for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on stag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. 
the revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. We're talking about corruption and what it means for the U.S. in October's show. And to start that conversation, we've got to take a look at what's been going on in the Trump administration to date. It's a long list of stuff, and inasmuch as it's a pretty good one, wrongdoing has become so pervasive in the executive branch that we're going to be looking to generations of historians and researchers to turn up every last bit. To start with the most obvious stuff, though, I know that last December and January feel like they happened years ago, but if we think back to those months, there was a little uproar on the left and total apathy on the right about what the president would do with his businesses. Every executive in modern history has divested himself of businesses and stocks and anything else that might result in a conflict of interest. That is, they've sold them and then put that money into a trust managed by somebody they don't know. That way, the business of government won't get mixed up with the private interests of the president. Long story short, Trump didn't do that and didn't even come close. He quote-unquote turned over the Trump organization to his own sons, and while that was set up as a trust— He gets quarterly updates, talks to his sons about the business all the time, and can apparently withdraw money from any of his businesses at any time without disclosing the activity, something that ProPublica confirmed back in April. A lot of us on the left thought that we'd really have to go digging once Trump got into office to figure out how he'd be using this false trust to make money. Turns out that he doesn't care much about subtlety. He's been forcing the federal government to pay him money directly. Both the Secret Service and the Department of Defense have rented space at Trump Tower because it's Trump's alternate residence, paying several million between them to the president's family. Mar-a-Lago and his other resorts have also seen payments from the feds. They aren't required to disclose exact amounts, so we don't know down to the dollar. But as of 283 days in office, as of the writing, according to NBC, 96 or more than one-third have been spent at Trump's own properties. And by the end of this presidency, we're going to look at direct transfers of money from taxpayers to Trumps to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And that doesn't just apply to the president himself. The Secret Service also protects the president's family, and when they travel, and they travel often, they tend to stay at Trump properties, at which the Secret Service has to rent those rooms. Likewise, the Trump kids travel on private jets, and the Secret Service pays to travel with them. Luckily for the Trumps, they also own those jets. The totals on those numbers aren't clear either, but during the campaign, by mid-September 2016, Tag Air, a Trump organization company, had received $1.6 million from the Secret Service, according to Politico. It's not just the U.S. government paying into the Trump coffers either. It's common knowledge abroad that you can give Trump money by staying at his hotels. The Trump International opened up in D.C. halfway through September of last year, and right now it hosts every traveling diplomat and lobbyist who needs to slip the President of the United States a big wad of cash. The Washington Post, along with Forbes and the Wall Street Journal and whoever else you'd need to believe it, reported that the hotel had generated $2 million in profit by August, when the Trump Organization had originally projected a $2 million loss. By all accounts, the food is terrible and the rooms are overpriced but people are buying influence at the hotel more than accommodations. And who's picking up those tabs? Turkey, Malaysia, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and some of the other Gulf states have been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on receptions and rooms when they come to town. 
Foreign lobbyists have made similar efforts at Trump's resorts and golf clubs, buying $100,000 memberships and booking rooms, putting dollar after dollar into Trump's pocket. And all of this on the record. Of course, it's not just the ways that Trump is benefiting himself personally, but the way that his administration has been set up to hand over money to industry. Now, doing the whole cabinet would be a day-long exercise, but take, for example, just Scott Pruitt at the EPA. You can look at Pruitt as just another bad hire, another guy that they brought on board because he didn't believe in the mission of the agency he'd been appointed to head. Or you could look at it through the lens that it deserves, that Pruitt has been making concerted efforts since day one to throw off any regulatory shackles that the EPA had managed to put onto the fossil fuel industry since its inception in the 1970s. Why would you take such an uncharitable view? Well, when Pruitt was still running for lieutenant governor and attorney general back in Oklahoma, he took over $300,000 from the oil and gas industry, and once he was in office over there, promptly dismantled the Environmental Protection Unit in the attorney general's office. He was one of several state attorneys general, all paid by the oil industry, who sued the EPA to shut down the EPA's clean power plan. Now that he's in the cabinet, Pruitt's moved to purge scientists from the EPA's advisory boards and from its grants. As Mike Bruce, executive director of the Sierra Club, has said, quote, For Pruitt, anything that helps corporate polluters make money is good, and science and facts are just roadblocks that he wants to tear down, unquote. Now that he's in charge of the agency, he's killed the clean power plant that oil and gas have been paying him for so long to fight. I would bet you all of the cash I make through SFD and all of the other money I'd ever earned in my life that the second he leaves the EPA, he'll be sitting pretty on some oil and gas boards, hauling in his rewards for torpedoing the U.S.'s last, best hope for staving off climate change. Pruitt also, incidentally, has requested a 24-7 security detail that costs orders of magnitude more money than the protection the EPA director usually receives. Just to rub it in, I guess. Some of this stuff isn't as easy to parse as a quid pro quo, but smells just as bad in any case. Both sides of both houses of Congress decided that Trump wasn't going to be as hard on Russia as Russia merited, even though members of the GOP have claimed over and over again not to believe any of the Russia investigation stuff. They got together in the spring and summer to pass, by a veto-proof majority, a set of sanctions against Russia. The administration needed to, quote, issue regulations or other guidance to specify the persons that are a part of or operate for or on behalf of the defense and intelligence sectors of the government of the Russian Federation, unquote, by the 1st of October, something that the president has so far failed to do by the end of that month. And here's one that's even more convoluted. Donald Trump is, belatedly, turning to address the opioid crisis that has, reportedly, killed more than 200,000 Americans. The guy he's put in charge of the opioid commission is New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, even though Jared Kushner is also somehow in charge. New Jersey calls itself the quote-unquote medicine chest of the world, and Christie has been aggressively pursuing some sort of public-private partnership with New Jersey-based drug companies. That is, the head of the president's commission on a pill problem has gone to pill producers in order to help them produce more pills in his state to somehow combat the already extant pill problem. From USA Today, quote, We should not be looking to industry to solve a problem they created. The answer to a pill problem is not always new pills, said Dr. Adrienne Few Berman, a pharmacology professor at Georgetown University and director of Farmed Out, a watchdog group that follows pharmaceutical industry marketing efforts, unquote. How is this a corruption problem? Well, there's the legal but distasteful side of Chris Christie pushing to get his state to benefit from a national health crisis. 
And then there's the legal but even more hateful side, where Christie's looking at cushy board seats or political donations from New Jersey Pharma the second he's out of the governor's mansion. That's not exactly far-fetched either. Also as reported by USA Today is that one member of the committee that Chris Christie is now chairing had donated $100,000 to Christie's super PAC, and that Christie has received over $400,000 from the pharmaceutical industry, including from some of the CEOs that are also sitting on this committee. The point here being that even though we won't know the full extent of collusion or corruption for years, if ever, the Trump administration is rife with former lobbyists and industry insiders, quietly dismantling the regulations and institutions of the executive branch, always in a way that benefits the industries that they use to work for. That so many questionable dealings and scandals have already come out, and that a full accounting of even what's public would take hours, is an indication of the depth of what's going on. Now, a lot of these short shows of mine end up apocalyptic, and I think rightly so, but this one isn't going to finish that way. No matter how bad the corruption gets here in the U.S., and signs point right now to real bad, it won't end the world or even the country, at least not directly. Although we've already seen the Trump administration's malfeasance accelerating climate change and cutting off our escape routes. No, the world and the country will stumble through, but what will happen is that the U.S. will start to look a lot more like Mexico. That might seem unlikely, especially to people who have experienced the endemic corruption here down south and the way that it touches every aspect of life. What's important to remember, though, is that corruption in the U.S. didn't start with Trump or even Citizens United. When Mexican friends and I start talking about U.S. politics, which is more and more these days, they'll often tell me, and they've been telling me for the four years I've been here, ah, well at least your country isn't corrupt like ours is. That's not a figment from a fictitious Mexican, either. They're aware of and disgusted by the state of their government, more so than we're wont to be in the U.S. But what I tell them is that, sure, we don't have or have nearly as much of the kind of out-and-out -out quid pro quos that you see here. As a rule, you can get out of a Mexican traffic ticket by bribing the cop. And usually you've been pulled over for no reason except that the cop could extract the payment. Mexicans have a saying that more or less translates to, a poor politician is a dumb politician, and I have literally never heard of a state governor retiring who hasn't been found to have gotten many times richer than his pay would lead you to believe. Likewise, even among those very few politicians brought up on charges, I've never seen one lose what he's stolen. They usually get out of jail time too, and head to the U.S., where they've invested their embezzled funds in property in New Mexico or Maryland, two states that have set up their financial laws to become just that kind of haven. No, I tell my Mexican friends, what we had up until the Trump administration was corruption, too. It was just legal. Campaign financing works differently down here, though no more honestly, and when I describe to them the way that wealthy individuals and companies can dictate policy through contributions, and the way that Citizens United help to ensure that most of that cash is untraceable, I can literally see a look of recognition and familiarity steal over their faces. Corruption can become an amorphous, vague word, especially under the legal system in the U.S., which needs an incredibly obvious trade of money for action to apply the term. But corruption is what we can or should call any instance in which members of the state, from cops on up to the President of the United States, violate the oaths or rules of their offices in response to or in pursuit of money or power. So a judge taking cash from a lawyer to throw a case, yeah, that's corruption. 
But when the Republican caucus votes in lockstep with the NRA, even when their constituents want tighter gun laws, that also is corruption. When Donald Trump appoints a new head of the FCC who comes from the telecom industry, and that guy destroys net neutrality to benefit the telecoms, and eliminates antitrust laws to let Sinclair Broadcasting become the only local broadcaster in the entire country, that is corruption. When Trump puts both his daughter and son-in-law in the White House, despite a total lack of qualifications, that's corruption. Above all, when both parties have received so much money for so long from the financial industry that we can't pass any effective regulation or antitrust legislation against Wall Street, even though it and the big banks are the most hated institutions in the country, with lower approval ratings than the Congress, that is corruption. Take for example what went down in Congress just last week. Banks in the U.S. have long abandoned traditional capitalist banking, where they lend money at interest and make slow, solid returns. Now they're all about loading up consumers with credit cards and fees. As CNBC reported in July, fully 40% of American banks' revenues were coming from ATM fees, deposit fees, transactions, insufficient funds, inactivity, mortgage, credit card, and every other type of fee you can imagine. Because a lot of that nickel and diming is transparently unjust, it's vulnerable to consumers banding together in class action lawsuits to hammer banks for bad practices. The banks, knowing that they were up to no good, started to write anti-class action clauses into their customer agreements, preventing that kind of lawsuit and protecting their racket. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which the Obama administration set up in the wake of the 2008 crash, instituted a rule to prevent those clauses from working, since they were basically get-out-of-jail-free cards written into banking contracts. The CFPB has been a bugbearer of the Republican Party, because inasmuch as they rode the populist Trump train last year, they're the captive party of the financial industry. Last week, they came through for their owners and passed, with a tie-breaking vote in the Senate by the Vice President Mike Pence, a retraction of that CFPB rule, allowing banks to once again exploit the American people to their heart's content. Who wanted that? The Republican base? I don't think so, guys. It might not meet the legal standards for the word in the United States, but those legal standards are themselves the products of that same corruption, of muddied interests slowly but surely buying the political systems of the country away from the people. So Mexico might seem like a long step from where we are in the U.S., but we're already well on our way. We've already laid the foundation. What we needed to get the ball rolling down Mexico way was for someone to do the next thing, to bring corrupt practices out into the open and to make them stick. And as we heard at length at the top of this show, Donald Trump was the man for the job. The problem with, and the strength, in better times, of a democratic republic is that it's built on our collective faith in norms and institutions. Strength because those norms defend us against all sorts of ills that befall other countries. We can tell from Chief of Staff General John Kelly's recent performances in the Calling Dead Soldiers Family scandal, and from the White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders' recent comments about how the press shouldn't dare to question a four-star Marine general, that there are in our country's members of the top brass who have their own ideas about where we ought to be headed, and members of the conservative establishment who wouldn't mind turning control over to the Joint Chiefs. But civilian control of the military is so strong here, even though it is really no more physically in terms of control than words on paper, that it's inconceivable that even a general willing to be tainted or diminished, as Kelly has by Trump, would attempt to carry out a coup. The norms and faith in civilian control go from the generals right down to the fighting man, so that even if someone at the top tried to seize control, 
there's no way that he could rally the men and women below him. Right now, though, Donald Trump is exposing the weaknesses of a system built on faith in institutions and norms. Within a constitutional republic, if somebody up high starts breaking the law and breaking with norms, the people in charge of other branches have to act to restrain that behavior. If they don't, if somebody like Donald Trump realizes that he can use party loyalty to beat out loyalty to country, then you've got a problem, and that's what we're looking at right now. Consider that despite Jeff Flake and John McCain and Bob Corker telling us that all the Republican lawmakers think Trump, behind closed doors, is a dangerous menace to the country, none of them will stand up and say anything in public, besides those three. And even those three, having said what they have, won't sponsor an impeachment or even a censure vote. The thing of it is that while Trump is destroying norms, and at the very least in terms of keeping his hotels, accepting foreign payments, and hiring his own kin into the White House, he's breaking the law. In a republic, unless the people set up by the Constitution to restrain his behavior do, it becomes very clear very quickly that the Constitution is just a piece of paper, that laws are just words, and that power can do as it wills. The Shah's Iran had a Constitution. Rios Montt's Guatemala had a constitution. Mexico has a very well-written constitution. The one Republican who's actually taking action is Bob Mueller. And in case you didn't remember it, yeah, Bob Mueller is a Republican, a lifelong Republican. And he's taking action in the Russia Corruption Obstruction of Justice investigation. Now consider the Republican establishment's reaction to that investigation from Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine. Quote, in today's Wall Street Journal op-ed page, two Republican former Department of Justice staffers, David Rivkin and Lee Casey, who frequently pop up in the media to defend party-line arguments, take the argument to its next step. They urge Trump to issue sweeping pardons to everybody involved in the scandal, himself included, so as to hopefully neuter Mueller's investigation. And would it be an overreach of sorts for Trump to quash an investigation into himself and his cronies? No, they argue. Indeed, they insist he can halt any investigation he likes. And now we're quoting from those two guys. Quote, A president cannot obstruct justice through the exercise of his constitutional and discretionary authority over executive branch officials like Mr. Comey and Mr. Mueller. If a president can be held to account for obstruction of justice by ending an investigation or firing a prosecutor or law enforcement official, an authority the Constitution invests in him as a chief executive, then one of the presidency's most formidable powers is transferred from an elected accountable official to unelected unaccountable bureaucrats and judges." End quote. And now continuing with the original article. Continue the breathtaking scope of this claim. They argue that the president can order any prosecutor or law enforcement official to halt any investigation or criminal proceeding. What if the president hired some goons to break into and bug the opposing party's headquarters? He could order the Department of Justice and FBI not to investigate and fire them if they did. What if he hired some goons to beat up or kill reporters of the opposing party? Same answer. The president, they argue, has unlimited right to protect himself and his allies from law enforcement as he sees fit." Unquote. The Congress, right now, should be signaling to the president that anything like that won't fly. But as reported today, the day of recording by the Washington Post, it looks like they're in fact flashing the opposite signal, with Lindsey Graham and his colleagues now pushing back when the press asks them if Bob Mueller needs protection. Once that kind of malfeasance gets in on top, and once everyone below sees that everyone on his side is willing to aid and abet, the whole structure under him begins to rot. My girlfriend's father is a talker, and when we were up in Sonora for a vow renewal a couple of weeks ago, 
he and I got into a long conversation about the Mexican Forestry Service, CONAFOR. It's the twin of the place that I worked in at Peace Corps, the Park Service, and by far it's the wealthier of the two agencies. What it mostly does is dispense cash for people to do projects. Somebody, for example, is going to cut down woodland to ranch cattle. So somebody in that community, or you, like a Peace Corps volunteer, you cook up some shade farming alternative, put together plans for training and equipment, and then you fund the thing. You save the forest. Now, this guy had worked as a regional chief at the Forestry Service for the better part of two decades, and he knew all the workings inside and out. And what he was telling me was that from its foundation in 2001 until after he'd retired, it was one of the least corrupt parts of the Mexican bureaucracy, because the guy who founded it had designed it that way. Regional and local chiefs, of which my girlfriend's father was one, they held the purse strings. But crucially, any decision on project funding had to be made in committee, which put everything into the light and onto the record. And that was, even though it was a very simple system, effective in keeping things clean. Well, when the Partido Revolucionario Institucional, the PRI, returned to power in 2012, it did what Mexican parties always do. It cleaned out the entire bureaucracy and filled it with its own supporters. At CONAFOR, they also got rid of that rule about committees. And the people they put in at the top were corrupt. Not because Mexicans are corrupt, but because the PRI is corrupt. And while CONAFOR had originally been set up by what was also a corrupt party, the founder was straight, and that had been enough to keep the agency that way. This time, though, even though a great majority of people at the service were forestry engineers and did not come in with any kind of plan to exploit their new positions, the guys at the top definitely did. Once you've got those rotten apples in at the top, man, the whole barrel quickly begins to putrefy. Because there are dual forces working on the guys below them. First, those top dudes try to involve the people underneath. And even if they fail in that effort, everybody who doesn't quit in protest slowly becomes complicit just by being around. And second, if you see your boss making 10 million pesos a year under the table, and you're making 8 grand a month and there are no repercussions that you can see, it's only a matter of time before you or somebody next to you starts considering getting in on it. One more thing here before I leave the Conafor example is that the corruption also doesn't always feel like a great wrong. And that helps it to spread. What's happening at the Forestry Service now is almost the same as before. People come to those regional chiefs with projects that they need funded. The chiefs fund them, and if they help out a friend or a congressman or a mayor here or there, even if the project's not perfect, what's the harm? And if those friends have a little bit of cash to spare once they're done, what's wrong with them passing a little cash back to the chief, right? Everybody wins, as the public's faith in the institution fades away. It's even the same with those Mexican cops that I mentioned a while back. If you get pulled over for a legitimate offense, speeding or running a light or whatever, you can either pay the system 12,000 pesos, or you can pay the cop 500 right now. Who's going to stand on principle for 11,500 pesos? You and he both win, and your faith in cops as anything more than their own type of organized crime diminishes. What happens is that all these little favors and shortcuts and takes add up and they metastasize and they begin to eat away at faith in the system, at the loyalty to institutions and the conformity to norms that makes democratic republics work. You can see it going on in the Trump administration right now. He didn't get rid of his hotels. He's using his presidency to channel both U.S. taxpayer and foreign money directly to himself, and nobody's calling him on it. 
So why don't I, Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, take a private plane somewhere on the government's dime? And why don't I write some rules that might work out for me in the market? Why don't I parlay my spot on the Opioid Commission into a sweet gig after I leave office? It's insidious, and it's much easier to prevent in the first place than to root it out once it's taken hold. For all that the Republican Party likes to talk about it as slow and lumbering, outside of the Pentagon, the American federal bureaucracy is one of the most efficient and least corrupt in the world. And that's us in our decline. If you don't think that's the case, come down here to Mexico or to almost any country outside of the best five in Europe and try to get a visa or a driver's license. Once you start to rot that bureaucracy, it's massive. More than two million civilians work for the federal government, and once corruption gets endemic and accepted, it will be impossible to prune it out. The thing I see here in Mexico every day that's the most depressing to me is the total loss of faith in politics. People aren't apathetic or even apolitical. It's that they have nowhere to turn, literally no action they could take that they feel will change the situation. There's a guy here named Chumel Torres, and he's like their version of Jon Stewart. He's got a YouTube show that more young folks watch than watch The Daily Show at its height, and HBO just signed him last year for a couple of programs. He's hilarious and incisive and blistering, but when another governor gets let off on a technicality or funnels all his ill-gotten gains through his wife while the lawyers of the prosecution throw up their hands and swell their bank accounts, even this guy has to say, well, that's Mexico, folks. What else could we expect? There's another dude named Kumamoto, the first ever independent elected to the state congress here in Jalisco. He's running for the national congress now, and he might be the only uncorrupted politician in all of Mexico. Young people love him everywhere, whether or not they live in this state, because he's teaching them that they can call their representatives, that they can participate and try to hold their politicians accountable. And when my girlfriend Sam and I talk about him, neither of us finds it strange to say that if he wins this election, if he stays straight as he has so far, if he weathers what's surely an already ongoing campaign to get him to take some dirty money, that we give him an 80-20 chance of finding himself assassinated, or the victim of a tragic traffic accident, or accidentally shot by police, or any one of the other dozens of things they could do to him. We've seen it all before down here, and that we cannot have faith in the police, whether local, state, or federal, in the Congress, or the governorship of this state, or in the massively corrupt federal government, it erodes all will to participate. It erodes all hope for change. We don't have faith in politicians in the US for the most part. And given that unwarranted faith in a faithless person led us to Donald Trump, that's probably a good thing. But we still barely have faith in politics. In the idea that motivated people through collective action can change their government and the circumstances of their lives. Mexico is a place where the rich and corporate interests and above all anyone with any degree of authority granted by the state can and often do abuse their power openly, blatantly, and there's nothing that regular people can do about it. That's very nearly our situation in the US right now, where the Koch brothers and Comcast and ExxonMobil and the lobbyists on K Street pull the strings of our lives in ways almost imperceptible and from positions almost untouchable by we the people. The only differences between us and Mexico is the obviousness of what they're doing. And until this past election, the still somewhat functional political institutions we have left to us. We can use those to turn things around. But what Trump is doing, and what the Republicans in the House and the Senate are blithely allowing him to do, if all of it goes much further, then we turn a corner, and then the situation becomes irreversible, short of revolution.
just like it is here in Mexico. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate, and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect.